Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Whew, I'm tired. I'm tired. Um, good to see you all. Thanks for braving the elements. I know it was a real act of sacrifice to drive in the rain, to get here. It's freezing, isn't it? What is it, like 72? <laughs> Well, I, I'm so happy to be here, even though I left 80-degree weather in Memphis, and I brought my golf clubs with me, right? And I get here, and Marty tells me this morning when he picks me up, yeah, it's only raining two days, uh, the month of March, uh, today and tomorrow. I'm like, great, I leave Tuesday morning. So, uh, but anyways, great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me just say once again, thank you to Pastor Lynn. Uh, thank you to the leadership team of Cornerstone for inviting me to come and to share with you. Look forward to uh, being at Man Church tomorrow night and then being back at Man Camp next month. I think I'm going to bring one of my sons with me for that. Uh, probably my oldest, It'll right around his birthday time. We'll, we'll just have a good time, good time doing that. So I hope you men are giving that some thought and some, some consideration. Let me just also, now, now what's the purpose of the clock? This is the last service, right? Just kidding. But um, also, kind of, um, uh, also, it's just, it just did my heart good. Uh, Pastor Lynn was uh, in the back just talking to me uh, prior to the first service, talking about the Ignite uh, church planning conference that you all do. And man, really my heart just leaped because I'm like, that's it. That's what the church of Jesus Christ just absolutely has to be about multiplying. And I think one of the things of the church growth movement, one of the problems is, is that we, we place the uh, emphasis on addition adding more and more and more people, when really as you understand discipleship, the book of Acts, what church is all about, it's about multiplying. And so it just did my heart good to hear Pastor Lynn share his heart about, about church planting. We just got into church planting. I pastor a church in Memphis, Tennessee called Fellowship Memphis, and we plant our, planted our first church uh, with a guy you may have heard of named Albert Tate. Have I ever heard of Albert Tate? Uh, all two or three of you, wherever two or three gathered his name. Uh, and so he just planted six weeks in and already seeing close to 600 people and freaking out, doesn't know what he's going to do with them, but having a great, great time there in Southern California. So we're really, really excited about that adventure. Hey, as I've been thinking about you, as I've been praying for you and about our time together, this word has just been burning in my heart to share with you, and I hope you find it a sense of encouragement. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul, and Paul says these words. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly, verse 26. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want to share a word with you this morning. I, I hope you'll find it a sense of spirit-empowered uh, encouragement. I hope you experience the love of God around you as I just share this with you. I want to talk about something um, that my wife and I have been talking more and more about recently, this whole idea, this whole concept of finishing well. You know, I'm 39 years of age. Uh, my wife and I, we, we just kind of talked about this. We, there's like, gosh, a group of about 10 of us couples who got married um, in, in the same month uh, July of 1999, and just the other month, my wife and I are sitting down talking as we're getting ready to celebrate 13 years of marriage, and we're just kind of looking at each other going, you know what, I think one and maybe one other couple, we're the last one standing. The other marriages didn't finish well. Um, as I look at, at, at people and their sense of integrity, look at a lot of people who start off well but don't finish well. As I think about people and their love for Jesus and how they first come to know Christ, and I'll talk some about this here in a few moments, and the passion that fills their soul, and there's just this sense of, and I get it, we don't run off of adrenaline, so don't hear me say that, but there's just this sense of, I meet more and more people who, it's kind of like, whatever happened to them? You got any people like that in your life? What, whatever happened to them? Do you remember? And it's kind of like the before shot it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like, I had my 20th high school year reunion, and you, I don't know if you've ever been to any of your high school year reunions, you, you kind of look at some people and go, yeah, you peaked too soon. 
And, and, and that's how I seriously feel when, when, I, when I'm looking at some marriages or I'm looking at some people's relationship to Jesus Christ. And I want to exhort us to be people who don't just start out well. But I want to exhort us to be people who finish well. Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Um, Lord God, I just, I just think about the great commandment, Lord Jesus, um, and how you instruct us, you command us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and to love our neighbor as themselves. And I, I, I pray, Lord God, that I, I would model this in an authentic way through the preaching of your word, that, that those who hear your word would go, mm, that's the guy who loves Jesus, and man, that's a guy who loves me. So I just pray that, Lord God. I, I, just, I just pray in a very authentic way. So Lord God, I, I not only pray that, that what you will say through me uh, will come back to you in such a way that brings you glory and edify your people, but I also pray, Lord God, in how that's communicated and how that's said, Lord Jesus, uh, that it brings you honor and glory and edifies and encourages and builds up. God, I pray that the seed of your word would fall on good soil. Uh, Lord God, that it would produce fruit, that it would change us, Lord God. God, we, don't, we just don't need more notes. There's a place for information, Lord God. But give us through that information, understanding, wisdom, and transformation. I just, just pray all that. Lord God, so stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. It's in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen and amen. So true story, several years ago, um, when a person said, uh, you know, I think I'm ready to be released from a place called a sanitarium, the authorities of the sanitarium didn't just go, okay, good, we, we think you're ready to be released. They would take them through a test that would allow them to determine, is this person ready to be released from a sanitarium or not? And so uh, what they would do is they would march this person down a long corridor um, or hallway to a janitor's closet, and once inside that janitor's closet, uh, a, a unique set of um, events or unique um, chain of events would begin to happen. Here's what they would do. Uh, the authorities would put a stopper in the sink, would turn the faucet on, with the result being uh, the sink filling up with water to the point where water was lapping over the edge and spilling onto the floor. They would watch as almost instinctively this person would take the mop in hand and would begin mopping those wet floors. Then the authorities would leave for 30 minutes. They would leave that hopefully soon to be released inmate inside that janitor's closet, stop her in the sink, faucet turned on, sink filling up with water, water lapping over the edge, wet floor, mop in hand for 30 minutes. If upon their arrival 30 minutes later, they still found this person mopping those wet floors, they knew he or she wasn't ready to go anywhere yet. And the reason why that person wasn't ready to go anywhere yet was because that person had failed to address and identify the root problem. And you and I both know that the root problem was not a wet floor, but the root problem was a stopper in the sink. And until they addressed, identified, literally pulled out the stopper, turned off the faucet, that person would find themselves in a maddening, perpetual state of mopping. Now, tragically, I want you to understand, I find that to be a tragic parable for how so many Christians conduct their walk with Jesus. So many Christians find themselves like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel took a little journey that was supposed to be six weeks from Egypt to the promised land. It turned into a 40-year debacle where they were taking perpetual laps around Mount Sinai, mopping those same old wet floors. And so many Christians are the same way. We deal with the same old proverbial wet floors in our life called sin. And I'm not here saying you, you, you. I'm saying, listen, I know what it's like to struggle with stuff. There's issues in my life that Brian Loritz is dealing with with and struggling with by the grace of God, and I've been struggling with this since the boy band era of 1998. I know what it's like to deal with the same old stuff. And so some of you are in the same place. You know what it's like. We're going to really be honest. Mopping the same old floors, doing the same thing, praying about the same kind of sin issues in my life. And here's the deal. I, I speak at so many of these events, retreats or conferences, whatever you want to call them. And I watch as Christians come, and it's legit and it's sincere. They take the notes. 
uh, they buy the CDs, the books. Um, at some of these events, they'll come to the altar, and this time in, they'll say, listen, I'm going to stop whatever. I'm going to stop the immorality, the lying, the pornography. I'm going to stop the gossip, the slander, and it's legit. Their request is legit, but here's the problem. After they do that, two days later, two weeks later, two months later, a year later, they're back to mopping those same old proverbial wet floors in their life called sin. And again, so many Christians are just, their walk isn't upward. Their walk is kind of in a, in a circle. And there's no, no real progress. And they're dealing with the same old issues. Well, I want, to, want you to know this morning, I haven't come all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, where it's 80 degrees and sunny, to give you another mop. I want to deal with the stopper. And it's a stopper that Paul deals with in our text. Here's the stopper. He deals with this whole issue of finishing well. If you get nothing else I say, I want you to get this statement. Starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. I'm the best husband in the world two days after the marriage conference. So what? Some of you were the best Christians in the world five minutes after you gave your heart and life to Jesus. Anybody can start out well in the throes of an emotional high or new experience. God's saying, big deal. Finishing well. That's the challenge. I remember when I was a college student, second semester of my sophomore year, uh, it was January, so it was kind of New Year's resolution kind of year, uh, time of the year. I, I hopped on a plane uh, there in Atlanta, uh, flew up to Philadelphia where I was going to college. And I remember thinking through my New Year's resolutions, and I, I had some bold dreams. Like, like one of my resolutions literally was, this semester I'm going to go to all my classes. This semester, I'm going to take all my own notes. This semester, I'm going to work ahead of schedule. And for those first couple of weeks, I was working ahead of schedule, turning assignments in early. It was wonderful. It was rich. And then midterms hit. And no longer was I not working ahead of schedule. I was struggling just to keep up. Why? Because as a college student, I understood that truism, starting well is easy. Finishing well. That's the challenge. For those of us who got saved later on in life, we know the truth that starting well is easy, finishing well is a challenge. For some of you who got saved later on in life, think of the joy that filled your soul. You were in the Word daily, and it was rich, and you were communing with God, and, 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 and you were, your, your prayers, no, they weren't the most theologically accurate, but it was wonderful, and you were praying, and there was a sense of joy, and there was a sense of delight, and it was wonderful, and, 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 and you knew one verse. I mean, you would share your faith and knew one verse, John 3, 16. After that, you tapped out. You were it. But man, I'm telling you, you shared your faith. And now look at some of us months later, years later. Our time with the Lord at best is erratic. Our prayer life is lifeless. There's no joy there. And some of us couldn't even tell you the last time we shared our faith. Why? Because we understand the truism. Starting well is easy. Big deal. Finishing well. Now that's saying something. There's a famous professor. He just retired from Dallas Theological Seminary. His name is Howard Hendricks, and Howard Hendricks actually did a study. Uh, he wanted to know who finished well in the Bible and who didn't. And so he read from Genesis to Revelation. He says this, if you read from Genesis through Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and every time you saw a person's name mentioned in the Scripture, you kind of jotted it down on a notepad. He said at the end of your reading, you would have discovered that there's about 2,931 people mentioned in the Bible. If you wanted to do a study, which of these 2,931 people finished well and which did not, he says there's, there's only enough sufficient information on 100 out of the 2,931 people that would allow you to determine who finished well and who didn't. Of those 100, only 30 finished well. Absent from the list, Moses. Absent from the list, Solomon. Starting well is easy, big deal. Finishing well, that's the challenge. Well, lest you think, as they say in Memphis, uh, my cheese has slid off its cracker. Some of you may be wondering, what is the big deal, Brian? What is the big deal about finishing well? My Bible tells me by implication that how we finish is a big deal to God because my Bible does not say that when we get to heaven and behold God face to face that God's going to say to us, well, start. 
but hopefully he'll save us well done. Because what matters most to God is not how well or how poor you start. It's, it's how you finish. Listen to me. Can I bless you with something because this blesses me? Some of us are here today and we've had poor starts, poor middles. But the very fact that you're breathing today, the very fact in the words of my grandmother that God has, has woken you up, started you on your way, the very fact that you're sitting here right now, it's God's way of saying, I'm not finished with you yet. The race isn't over. Pick yourself up by the power of my spirit and finish well. Well, Brian, it's good stuff. It's kind of ethereal. How do I do that? How do I become a person who finishes well? In our passage, Paul uses the metaphor of the marathon to depict the, life, the Christian life. If you know anything about Paul, he was huge into athletics. And here's Paul using an athletic metaphor. And in this metaphor, again, he uses the metaphor of the marathon. He helps us to see there are three key ingredients that will allow us to be people who hear God say of us, well done. These three key ingredients are all tied into three key words. The first is found in verse 24. Will you look at it with me? Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. First key word is the word run. Paul originally wrote this uh, text in a language called Greek. The Greek word for run is treka, from which we get the English word track from. But this word treka, it doesn't so much speak of the physical repetitious movement of one's feet. It, it speaks more to the essence of the runner, for it literally means to give it your all. Or to say it another way, run doesn't so much speak uh, to the runner's actions as it does his attitude. It doesn't so much speak to the runner's motion as it does one's motive. For this word, again, literally means to give it your all. Paul says, those who hear God say of them, key point number one, are those who are committed to radical excellence. Now, I ain't hearing nothing, and if I was preaching to a chocolate church, they may have amened right there. <laughs> Um, I know Phoenix ain't a popular place with the brothers. That's okay. I knew that when I came out here. Y'all got like two, Jamie Foxx and Charles Barkley. But anyways, um, so let me illustrate this for you, okay? I grew up on the south side of Atlanta, a little sleepy town called Fairburn. Our claim to fame is Evander Holyfield, the great uh, heavyweight boxing champion, lives there. Every August, me and my brother would beg my dad to take us down uh, to, uh, to uh, Duncan Park and sign us up for Pop Warner football. Nothing gave me greater joy than to hit someone in Jesus' name. Legalized violence, I absolutely loved it. Okay, pray for me, I'm sick. And so my dad would walk me and my brother down there. It'd be about a 10-minute walk. And here we, we get to, uh, to Duncan Park, and it's registration day. And Pop Warner football is huge in Atlanta. And they take you from station to station. One station, you stepped on, on some scales. They just wanted to make sure that you weren't 10 years old, weighed 280 pounds, and was crushing everybody. And next station, they'd see how tall you were. And the next station, you'd sign medical release forms. And then the last station, you had to write the check for the registration fee. Now, you need to know this. My dad is a phenomenal preacher. And he did not need a pulpit to preach to us from. And every single year, my dad would embarrass the living daylights out of me and my brother because he would preach to us in front of all these other little boys our age. He preached to us the same sermon word for word. He, he, preached to it, uh, he preached it to us for eight years running, and he preached it so often I have memorized it verbatim. He would go something like this. Now, sons, please understand that your mother and I don't make a whole lot of money. We're on staff with a nonprofit Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And technically, sons, I am not your provider. I am merely a conduit by in which God provides. I'm like eight years old. What in the world does conduit mean? <laughs> now, sons, uh, because we're on, a, on staff with a nonprofit Christian organizations and don't make a whole lot of money, sons, this check costs us a lot. And before I sign this check, we need to get two things straight. Point number one, if I pay, you stay. In other words, sons, I ain't trying to talk here midway through the season that the coach is too mean, the practice is too long, the boys hit too hard, the weather is too uh, hot. No, no, no. If I pay, you stay. And one year to solidify his point, he marched us downstairs to the Loritz family basement, took out the Loritz family dictionary, flipped to the Q section, took out a pair of scissors, and literally cut out the word quit. From then on, he loved to remind us, see, the word quit doesn't even exist in our house. <laughs> 
If I pay, you stay. Now, his second point was more problematic. I'm still getting counseling over it, in fact. His second point was, if I pay, you stay and you play. In other words, sons, God has invested in you certain athletic abilities that do not warrant you sitting on the bench. Or to say it another way, sons, I'm not trying to look at you do what, you, what I'm doing, and that's watching the other little boys play. If I pay, you stay and you play. Give it your all. Cornerstone, there's a misnomer about salvation. The misnomer about salvation is that salvation is cheap. No, no, no. Salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. Just because it didn't cost you something doesn't mean it didn't cost someone something. See, the Marathon of the Christian Life had a registration fee. Ours was paid on a hill called Calvary when Jesus Christ died the horrible death of crucifixion. In fact, do you know where we get the word excruciating from? It comes from the Latin excruciatas, ex, out of cruciatas, cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of pain and suffering, they literally went to the cross. I don't know if you've read it. It's a phenomenal book, but Lee Strobel's wonderful work um, um, when he talks about Jesus Christ and he talks about the cross of Jesus Christ and how uh, Jesus Christ was crucified. He, 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 in this book, The Case for Christ, actually interviewed a medical doctor who's an expert in crucifixion. And he said, more, more times than not, long nails were nailed, not through the hands, but through the wrists. And when it would go through these bones in the wrist, it would typically strike a nerve, causing the hands to draw up like this. Long nails were driven through the feet, and two centurions would come and drop that, drop that victim into a post upon being dropped into a post, all of your joints would become dislocated and you'd have to push up to get air. You know the average length of time it took a person to die the death of crucifixion? Not two or three minutes, not two or three hours, but the average length of time it took a person to die the death of crucifixion was two or three days. But if you had a nice centurion, he would take his club and break your leg so you could no longer push up to get air, thus expediting the process. Salvation is free, but most certainly it is not cheap. And see, I think Jesus Christ has the same mentality my daddy had. Because I've paid, you stay. Don't come talking midway through the race that the economy is too tough, the marriage is too tense, the job situation too rough, the gas too high, the kids too ornery. No, 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 the word quit shouldn't be in the Christian's dictionary. And not only that, I think Jesus Christ is saying, Brian, because I've paid, you stay and you play, give it your all. Don't settle for a C, C minus Christianity, but strive for a Hebrews 11, Dean's List kind of faith. Is that you? You know, I thank God that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he didn't quit. At any given moment, the Bible says he could have called a legion of angels, said, I'm done, I didn't do anything to deserve this. But not only did he hang in there, but he gave it his all, he gave it his only, his only life. And here's the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, that now that I've been saved because Christ didn't quit and he gave it his all, all of the Christian life is my response to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That now the Christian life for me is not a I have to, I have to, but it's I get to. I get to read the word. I get to pray to the one who saved me. I get to give money to the kingdom. I get to care for the least of these because of what Jesus Christ has did, done for me on the cross. Are you a person of excellence? Those who hear God say of them, well done, are those who don't quit, who give it their all. They're people of excellence. First key word is found in verse 24. It is the word run. Second key word is found in verse 25. Will you look at it with me? 
Paul says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Every athlete exercises self-control. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. That key word there is self-control. If you've got NIV, it's competes. Uh, the Greek word there is, is very interesting. Listen carefully. It's the Greek word agonizomai, agonizomai. Agonizomai, that word sounds faintly familiar to you. It should. It's from that Greek word agonizomai that we get the English word agony or agonize from. Paul says this, the marathon of the Christian life, look at me, like any other marathon presupposes pain and problems. There will be agony running the marathon of the Christian life. Why? It's a marathon. It is not a 100-yard dash. Anybody here ever run a marathon? Anybody? God bless you. You're my heroes. I used to have an assistant. Her name was Lynn Takis. She uh, worked with me at, at a church that I used to work at in Charlotte, North Carolina. She ran a lot of marathons. I remember one day asking her the question, uh, Lynn, um, just talk to me some about the runner's wall. She says, you know what, Brian, the runner's wall is that point in the race, it, it usually hits me around mile 18, 19, or 20. I'm going, oh my gosh. But she says that runner's wall is that point in the race where in a very surreal moment, your body turns around and looks at you and says, you kidding me? Stop. This hurts. And then she says these words. But those who finish the race are those who push through the pain. Hear me, this is one of the most important things I'm going to say to you this morning. I want you to check a box with me. You're going to have problems. I'm going to have problems. Listen to me. I need to straighten out our theology. There's this, you got to be careful who you listen to on radio. You got to be careful who you listen to or watch on TV. What preachers, I'm not saying they're all bad. <laughs> I happen to be on Christian radio. I'm not saying they're all bad. But hear me. Many of them are preaching this name it, claim it, prosperity theology that comes straight from the pit of hell. And it goes like this. Those who have great faith, who really love Jesus, who are walking close with Jesus, uh, they never have any problems and they get everything they want. And if for some reason you do get a problem, it's your fault and God's mad at you. And you get everything you want. You get that brand new Range Rover with 24-inch rims. Okay, rims, African-American colloquialism for hubcaps. But anyways. <laughs> and it makes you go, what Bible are they reading? I mean, they literally must cut out the whole book of Job. They've got mind his own business. God describes Job as being perfect and upright. And yet God recommends Job to Satan. I mean, I just, I just wonder at the end of the story, when Job finds it, he's like, thanks, bro, appreciate it. <laughs> and yet here's Job, perfect upright. By the time Satan gets finished with him, he loses his business. He goes to a funeral, 10 caskets, each casket holding one of his kids. He covered from head to toe in boils. And on top of that, to add insult to injury, he's got a wife nagging him. Curse God and die, curse God and die, curse God and die. Yet there's nothing in the text that suggests that he did anything wrong to deserve that. they got to cut out the teachings of Jesus. I love this one. Jesus, you want to follow me? You want to follow me? Great, great. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, before you go to the new members class, I, I, just, I just need to say this. It's in fine print. Um, if you really want to follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself daily. Follow me. And back then, Cornerstone and Cross wasn't a bad day at work. It wasn't a pretty little platinum ornament that adorned a necklace. It wasn't a piece of bling. It wasn't bill collectors calling the house. But it meant walking with Jesus so closely that I'm willing to die the same kind of death that he died. They have to cut out the cross itself. What did Jesus do? the perfect Son of God, to endure the suffering and sickness of the cross. They're going to cut out the teachings of Paul. I, I love this one. Paul wrote Timothy, Indeed, all those who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus, not might be, not could be, but will be persecuted. Listen, the Bible says the exact opposite of these name it, claim it teachers. Here's what the Bible says. The only way Brian Lewis really knows how him and Jesus are doing, I can't find that out on the mountaintops. I can only find that out in the valley, the problems of life. 
You want to know how you and Jesus are really doing? Sitting here on cushioned seats in a climate-controlled environment, that's not where you find it out. You find it out at the local hospital. You find it out when the pink slip comes across your cubicle. You find it out in the difficulties, the stresses, the strains of life. And hear me. Someone needs to hear this word. You're going through a rough time right now, and God's word to you is this. I'm not mad at you. It's called life. Stop racking your brain trying to figure out what you did wrong. The Bible says, in this life, you will have trouble. So the question on the table is not will problems come. They'll come. And typically when they come to the Loritz house there in Collierville, Tennessee, they bring their aunts and uncles and cousins all at the same time. The question on the table is why? Why does God allow problems to come my way? Uh, when I was in high school, uh, spring semester, my freshman year, I decided to try out for uh, spring football. Had a wonderful time, got to know the head coach, uh, Coach Bradford, a little bit. And then uh, the, next semester, the next semester, which is my first semester of my sophomore year, um, I decided to try out for the varsity football team. So I just, you know, I wanted to be with the big boys. And, but and I'd never lifted weights before and figured I needed to lift weights if I was going to be able to, to really try to make it a go in order to make the varsity football team. So first time ever lifting weights, here I am, Campbell High School gym. It is packed out. I walk in, um, the bench, I, I wait on the bench to clear, uh, bench clears, I go over, do a couple of reps, set the bar down, get some water. I'm in the middle of my second set when all of a sudden I hear Coach Bradford's voice. It is a packed house, my first time working out, and I hear him say this, Loritz, son, what are you doing? Take those girly weights off the bar. I'm thinking to myself, please use your inside voice. <laughs> Take those girly weights off the bar. He marches over, and I'm looking at myself. I'm thinking I'm doing, I'm doing good. It's my first time lifting weights. I must have had at least 10 pounds on either side. And yet here he is, comes up, takes these 10-pound weights, and he puts these huge 45-pound plates on either side, and he says real loud, now lift it three times. Here I am, 14, 15 years of age, biggest decision I've ever had to make in my life. Either I say thanks but no thanks, be the laughing stock of Campbell High School, no more athletics for me, or I can trust Jesus in ways I'd never trusted him before. So instantly, I become a charismatic. I'm calling on every name of Jesus, known in unknown language, and boom, here I go. Boom. Oh, mm. oh mm. it ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Struggling. Oh. And all of a sudden, Coach Bradford began tapping up the bar, whispering in my ear, saying, come on, son, two more. Boom. Oh. You can do that tapping thing again, Coach. <laughs> and he starts to tap it up. Come on, son, one more. Coach, I can't do another. He says, Loritz, think of all those cheerleaders cheering for you at the first pep rally. Oh, I think I can handle it, coach. And then Coach Bradford said something to me in a sophisticated Southern style, something I'll, I'll never forget. It stayed with me to this day. The essence of what he said was this. Son, if you want to get big, you got to pick up something heavy. It's real deep, isn't it? That'd be a good fortune cookie, wouldn't it? <laughs> if you want to get big, pick up something heavy. And then he says these words to me. He says, major weightlifting principle, Brian, as long as you lift what only you can handle, you'll never get the results you desire to get. Someone needs to hear that. Right now, the bar of life is really heavy for some of you all. Relationship weights, job weights, financial weights, emotional weights, parenting weights. And you're going, I can't make it. I'm struggling, but it ain't going nowhere. Paul says, in my weakness, he's made strong. And you need to know that at that point in your life when you're saying, I, I, I can't move this, God says, I've got you right where I want you. Now don't quit. And he assigns to you his divine spotter called the Holy Spirit who begins to tap up the bar and whisper in your ear, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't quit. 
Point number one, radical excellence. Point number two, radical endurance. God's word to you. You're wanting to walk out of that marriage. God's word to you. Don't quit. There's something I'm developing in you. And the reason why there's so many Christians who've been saved for years and years and years but don't have a shred of spiritual muscle is the moment life gets hard, they set the bar down, tuck tail, and run. And God is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What the enemy wants to use to destroy you with, I want to turn around and use to develop you with, but will you stay under the weight? Will you remain under it? Now, see, I love this service. It's telling me I'm 18 seconds over, but who cares? I've got one more point. The other services I stop, we're going to get through it. Here we go. What does it take to finish well? Excellence, because he's paid. I stay, I play. Endurance, I don't quit. Problems will come. God uses problems in a redemptive way to make me into the type of person one person asked me after the, after the second service, well, what do I need to do to make the, the bar of life heavy? <laughs> Two things. <sighs> Inhale, exhale. Keep living. <laughs> Keep living. Thirdly, look at verse 26. As we conclude, Paul says, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. First key word, run, verse 24. Second key word is found in verse 25. It's the idea of um, self-control or the idea of competes. Third key word is found in verse 27. It is the word preaching. The word preaching is an interesting word in our text. Again, it comes from a Greek word that's really an athletic term. Uh, the Corinthians loved their sports. Every other year they had their version of the Olympics called the Isthmian Games. They called it that because Corinth was located on an isthmus. At these games, before each contest, the referee or umpire would come and he would announce the rules. He would say, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Here's what's inbounds, here's what's out of bounds. He would announce the rules. Uh, that idea of announcing the rules is really what's translated as our word preaching. For our word preaching is the idea of to announce the rules. Here's what Paul's saying. For anyone who announces the rules over here but lives over here, that's a problem. Paul says, I, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I, I myself should be disqualified. Other, Paul goes th th this way with it. He goes, I don't want to be that guy who announces the rules over here but lives over here. He says, for anyone who announces it over here, could be a parent with your children, could be a coworker with your coworker, uh, could be a follower of Jesus Christ with his small group. For anyone who announces, who says, this is what the Christian life is over here, but I live over here, you're disqualified. What he's arguing for here is the antithesis. He's arguing here for integrity. Me and my boys have been working on the thumbnail definition of integrity. Let me give it to you. Integrity is the alignment of words with deeds. Integrity is the alignment of words with deeds. Or to say it another way, integrity simply means I do what I say. And Paul says, for anyone who talks it over here, but walks it over here, he's not preaching perfection. Listen, all sin is a breach of integrity. What he is arguing for is a way of lifestyle. If I announce the rules over here, and yet over here I'm living in a certain different way from what I just talked about, he goes, you're disqualified. Now, what's disqualification? It's not loss of salvation. How can you lose something you never earned in the first place? But it's loss of reward. Some of you may be going, Brian, what's the big deal in losing my reward? You know, when I was a... Um, when I graduated from high school, our, our high school was, was medium-sized. It was... It was small enough to where all the high school graduates, we were listed on the, the program. And so when we walked in, each of us graduates in our cap and gown, we got an actual program. And on, on this program listed all of our names. And I noticed right away that only some names had a set of symbols next to them. Uh, one, one, one set of symbols meant that Keisha graduated summa cum laude. Another set of symbols meant that Michael graduated magna cum laude. And then there's my name, no set of symbols. It just meant that I graduated, thank you, Lottie. Some of you will laugh at 3 o'clock this afternoon because you just got it. The Arizona State people will laugh at that later. Uh, but anyways, um, so here's the deal. Now that I just alienated a bunch of you. Here, here I am, right? right? I'm in my cap and gown. I've just graduated. So I'm in. Done deal. Got my diploma. I've graduated. But I'm looking at my name, no set of symbols, and I'm sad. I've graduated. 
didn't lose graduation. I've got the diploma, done the whole thing with the tassel and the cap. I've crossed over, but I'm sad because I'm looking at my name, no set of symbols, which means no rewards, and I'm reflecting over my tenure in high school, and I have this thought, I wish I would have tried harder. I wish I would have pushed it harder. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that when we get to heaven, all of our works are going to be placed on a conveyor belt. And those works are going to go through the fire. And those things that we did in this life that had no eternal value, they're going to be wood, hay, and stubble. And when they go through the fire, they're going to be consumed and we'll have nothing to show for it. But then there'll be other works that we did in this life that did have eternal uh, reward, that did have eternal value. That's gold, silver, and precious stone. And when that goes through the fire, it's going to be purified. And I believe it's going to go into the making of our crowns. Now, the point of heaven is to not parade around going, look at my crowns, you don't have any crowns. No, that's not the point, for we'll all lay them at the Savior's feet. But I believe for that person who has nothing to lay at the Savior's feet, they're going to be like me, how I was in my high school graduation. They're going to reflect on their tenure here on earth, and they're going to wish they would have been a man or woman of integrity. They're going to wish they would have pushed a little harder. They're going to wish they would have been a person who would have finished well. You know, as an African-American man, I'm pretty unique in that um, if you study the history of our country, they did not keep good records on slaves. And so my uniqueness is that our family can actually trace our family lineage back to pre-emancipation proclamation days. It begins for our family with uh, my great-great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Peter. I believe I talked to, to you all a little bit about him the last time I was here. Um, Peter was, er- was owned by a German Reformed family in Asheville, North Carolina. He worked the plantations there in Asheville. And um, this family led him to faith in Jesus Christ. This family was incredibly nice to us uh, because when the emancipation went down, they actually gave Peter 300 acres of land in Catawba County, North Carolina, free and clear. Peter was an illiterate man, couldn't read or write, but Peter memorized, according to family tradition, much of the New Testament. Some of you are wondering, how does that happen? Well, Peter would be out on the old uh, porch there, the old family homestead, and he'd have his kids read to him from the same section of Scripture over and over and over again. And that was a double-edged sword. It not only got the word into him, but it got the word into them. Side note. At our church in Memphis, every Sunday, I memorize the text that I'm preaching on. I'm preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and of course, Matthew opens up in the first 17 verses the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I just remember thinking, I can't do this. And immediately, I caught a vision of my illiterate great-great-grandfather, Peter, peering over the balcony of heaven, looking at his Ph.D. candidate great-great-grandson, Brian Loritz, telling me to suck it up. And when Peter died, he died having finished well. Peter had a son, my great-grandfather, Milton. Milton Milton gave a part of his land away to the Thomas AME Chapel uh, Church there in Conover, North Carolina. Of all the churches I've ever preached at, no offense, Cornerstone, that's my favorite. Can seat no more than 75 people. Um, Milton and his wife, Anna, are are buried right outside. Um, Milton and Anna had 14 kids. They were busy people. (laughs) All 14 of their kids came to know the Savior. And when he died, he died having finished well. Their youngest boy is my grandfather, Crawford Willow Loritz Sr., old Hambone, they used to call him. Uh, My grandfather uh, played in the uh, Negro Leagues, played professional baseball, played with the likes of Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige, finished his career actually in Memphis. Um, During the off-season, my grandfather worked the coal mines in Kentucky, and one off-season as he's working the coal mines, a blast goes off, uh, knocks out his, uh, I think it was his right eye, it knocked it out. Um, by the way, the coolest thing my grandfather ever did was at the breakfast table, he put his teeth in one jar and his fake eye in the other jar. So cool. <laughs> but to go through something horrific like that, it didn't destroy him or rob him of his joy because he had committed his heart and life to Jesus Christ. When my grandfather died, he died having finished well. The reason why I'm so fair-skinned is because uh, my grandmother, Crawford Willow Loritz's wife, Sylvia Lucinda Gray Loritz, 
Um, her mother was the help. Her mother was a domestic. She was cleaning a white man's home in Lincolnton, North Carolina, and this, uh, this white man happened to rape her, and my, gr my grandmother was the product of that rape. And here she is, she's growing up in Lincolnton, North Carolina, and as she's growing up in Lincolnton, North Carolina, she's ostracized by the black community for her white blood and by the white community for her black blood, and she went through some horrific things, and yet she came to the foot of the cross at an early age. She gave her life to Jesus. In fact, in October 1998, as she was on her deathbed, her last dying request was that I would read to her from her old, tattered, torn Bible. And that's how she passed. She died having finished well. My father is the godliest man that I know. You talk about a man who aligns words with deeds. I've never seen him be disrespectful to my mother. Uh, even in his imperfections, he's incredibly godly. Um, he's never made a promise to me that he didn't keep. Um, when he would do something that he felt was wrong, he would apologize to me right on the spot. There's been countless times when he would come to uh, my class in junior high and would pull me out of the classroom, look at me eyeball to eyeball, and apologize for how he said something to me. My dad, I have no doubt that when he dies, he'll die having finished well. I prepare to leave you. On Tuesday morning, I will board a plane, and I'll... Um, actually, i got to go somewhere else, and then I'll come back to Memphis. And when I get to Memphis, my kids will rush out to meet me when they hear the garage door going up. And it won't be because they're happy to see me. It's because they want to know, what did you bring me? <laughs> they're my greatest challenge in life and my greatest joy. My greatest challenge in life isn't preaching. My greatest challenge in life isn't pastoring a church. My greatest challenge in life is Quentin Miles and Jaden, and to make sure that the baton that began with an old illiterate slave named Peter, a baton that's got written on it called Finishing Well, that was passed down to Milton, passed down to Crawford Sr., Sylvia, Crawford Jr., and now me. It is to make sure that when I die, I would have left my wife and kids far more than a life insurance policy, but I would have left them a legacy of Finishing Well. Some of you, I know what you're thinking. Brian, great story. That's not mine. The Temptations sang my story. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he ever left me was alone. Some of you are going, my parents weren't Christians. I'm the first Christian. What does that have to do to me? Here's what I would say to you. Start one. Start a legacy of finishing well. So that 150 years or so from now, your great-great-grandchildren are preaching somewhere or sharing their testimony, and they can say, this is how it started with me. It began with my great-great-grandmother, my great-great-grandfather saying, we're going to be people of excellence, people of endurance, people of integrity. We're going to be people who finish well. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we bless you and we thank you for your word. God, how we need it. God, I pray that you would overwhelm us with your grace. All of us, Lord God, have done shameful things in our past, things that we wish we could have a mulligan on. And yet, Father God, I, I like everyone else, stand in incredible need of your grace. And so, Father, will we refuse to believe the lies of the enemy who would say, God can't use you, God can't bless you, God can't because of what you've done. And that's why I'm so thankful for Lamentations 3. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Thank you, Lord God, that I, I'm living off of March 18th mercies today because I need them. I need them. But for the grace of God, Lord, I could have been, I should have been disqualified. But I'm still here. I'm still living. I'm still breathing. And I hear you whisper to me. I hear you whisper to us, get up and finish well. And so here's my prayer, Lord God, and I prayed over myself and I prayed over your people that our latter days would be greater than our former days that our latter days would be greater than our former days. 
that our latter days would be greater than our former days. Lord God, would you encourage someone here today with these words? I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to develop you. I'm trying to strengthen you. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep getting after it. You're my child. You're my child. There's someone here today, they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord God, your gospel is so true. And I thank you, Lord God, that it's changed and is changing my life. The paradox, the great mystery of the gospel is these two statements, they, they cohabit with one another. And it is that on one hand, I am more sinful than I'd ever like to admit. Yet on the other hand, at the same time, I am more loved than I could ever imagine. And I pray that over us, Lord God, that we would come to know that truth. If you don't know Jesus here this morning, I just want to challenge you. Revelation 3 says Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and life. He wants to come in. He wants to hang with you. Some of you are going, well, Brian, look at all this mess in my life. He sees it. He knows it. But Jesus, he didn't die for issues. He died for people. So, Lord God, I do pray, yes, you, you, you cleanse sin. Yes, you give us victory over sin. But you don't love the issues. You love God so loved the world. It's you and me. What must you do to be saved? Revelation 10, 9 and 10 says, would, would you just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Christ Jesus is Lord? You, you'll, you'll be saved. Jesus Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. As long as you acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord, confess your sins, invite him into your heart and life by the person and power of your Holy Spirit, you will be saved. And so, Father, what a joy it is to be with your people. Comfort us with these words. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.